Before we pick things up where we left them off last Sunday, I do want to take just a moment. We'll dive into Acts 28. We'll pick things up at verse 11. But before we do, there's just a few more thoughts I'd like to share about the first two verses of chapter 28. I'm just going to read the verses again. As mentioned, we'll get up We'll pick back up where we left off, verse 11, but if you'd bear with me, verse 1 of chapter 28, the book of Acts. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. If, as we've mentioned, in the grand scheme of things, this storm that we've seen for the last maybe chapter and a half, presents an allegory of life that all men, all women, all people share this same journey through storms. If this is the case, then there is an interesting picture tucked into these two verses that we can't overlook. It would be tragic to overlook. Acts 27. As it closes, there's a group of men on a ship caught in a storm This storm for the men on this ship, the 270-odd seamen, possesses a, a different application. For some, it was a storm of correction. For others, it was a storm of direction. Either way, it was a storm nonetheless. And here they are in the midst of this storm. They've lost their orientation. They don't know where they are. They can't see the stars. For two weeks, the wind and the rain have been pounding. The waves have been crashing. Luke has even gone to the point of letting us know that all hope was lost for survival until Paul stood up and shared a word he had received from the Lord. But this was a storm. And in the midst of this storm, to me it's not an accident that they end up washing up upon the shore of a little island in the middle of the Mediterranean known as Malta, that God led them to this island. Now, as we looked at last Sunday, there was a divine purpose behind this. There was a a ministry and a work, a group of people on this island that God orchestrated the events to get his man and his place for his purposes. A revival takes place on the island of Malta. But working with our analogy of the storm of life, us being caught in the storm of life, to me it's fascinating that these men, while caught in a storm, in the midst of it, God provides them this little island, Malta. And the reason I find that significant is that the word Malta literally means refuge. To me, the imagery is amazing. In the midst of their storm, God was providing them, the shipmen, the soldiers, the prisoners alike, a place of refuge. Really, can you think of a better picture for what the church, specifically Calvary 316, is called to provide a world full of people suffering through storms. Sure. We've seen in this blueprint for the church, as presented in the book of Acts, that the fundamental role of a church is to equip believers to fulfill their ministry and calling 
by teaching God's word. And the church exists in a lesser extent to provide a place for Christian community interactions. But I also believe, as presented in this incredible allegory, this picture, that the church, the church that Jesus established, the church we're a part of, is also called, it has been commissioned, to be a place where people can find refuge in the midst of storms. I don't know about you, but I want Calvary 316 to be such a place. I want our church to be a refuge where people can come in from whatever storm it is they're facing, that they can come in and be ministered to, filled anew with the Spirit of God, that they can come and encounter Jesus. I want our church to be a safe place, a sanctuary, where people from all walks of life can find refuge, a temporary reprieve from whatever storm this past week has maybe presented. And it's with that being said, that in order for us to be that place of refuge, a place of protection from the rain and from the cold, there are three things required of the natives. If you'd look to your left, if you'd look to your right, those are the natives. The natives in the place of refuge. If we're to be a place of refuge, the natives have to do three things. I'll share them with you first. Notice, Luke tells us that the natives made them all feel welcome. In the Greek, this word welcome is proslembano, meaning, literally, to receive into one's home. And what's interesting about this word is that it's always used in the middle voice, signifying a special interest on the part of the receiver, not the person receiving. Basically, what Luke is describing here, what he's telling us, is that the natives, and you kind of got to imagine their vantage point in all of this, seeing the ship, seeing it being beaten up on the rocks, thinking there's no way there's going to be survivors, seeing men dive in swimming to shore. They're getting this whole thing play out. But they took it upon themselves to assume the responsibility of making sure the men who washed up upon their shore immediately felt welcome and at home. Don't forget that as they're still on the ship, knowing that there's land, a bay, thinking maybe they can run the ship ashore, we're told they didn't recognize the island. So these men dive in, they swim to shore, they see other people, natives. And you can imagine that initially, there's some trepidation, a little bit of fear. They don't know where they are. And yet the natives immediately, with some prompting inside of themselves, rush up, welcome them, remove that fear, temper down the trepidation, making sure it's okay with everything that's happened, with everything you've gone through, don't worry. You're in a safe place. Knowing how traumatic the experience had been for these men, the natives were told they welcomed them how? Well, look again. Luke says that the natives showed unusual kindness. This phrase, showed unusual kindness, 
is used by Luke to describe an abnormal level of kindness or brotherly love. Understand, our special interest in making sure the people who walk through our door feel welcomed is that we want to demonstrate and represent the love of Jesus. That should be our special interest, our motivation. The reason we should welcome anyone who walks through the door and demonstrate love is because Jesus has called us to do that. Billy Graham once said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, but my job to love. And keep in mind, going out of your way to make someone feel welcomed does not demand that you accept their behavior or their lifestyle. Like the two things are not codependent. Making someone feel welcomed by showing them the love of Christ in a practical way, with a handshake, a smile, an invitation to sit with you. It actually has nothing to do with the person itself and everything to do with you representing the heart of Jesus. Don't forget the motivation for making someone feel welcome is a special interest on your part, that interest representing Jesus. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul explains what the motivation should be for this type of godly behavior. Paul wrote, therefore, receive one another. Why? As Christ also received us to the glory of God. Once again, there is a difference between someone feeling accepted and someone being welcomed and loved. I can make you welcomed and I can demonstrate love without accepting your lifestyle. As a matter of fact, biblically speaking, like I'm glad Jesus loved me and didn't accept my lifestyle because he wanted to transform me into something better than that. I'm glad Jesus doesn't require we have our acts together in order to be welcomed at the foot of the cross. Can you say amen? 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, we're told by the apostle of love, the apostle John, this is love, he says, that he, speaking of Jesus, loved us, that's you and I, and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And understand in context, John is not just talking about those who are saved, but those who are in the place of needing to come to the cross. We're to represent Jesus. Now, before we get into the third thing, the third thing required of the natives, I'd like to point out that the first two that are mentioned here are actions, their activities, their deeds. Luke is clear the natives, look at it, made us all welcome and showed us unusual kindness. The crew felt welcomed. They experienced kindness, not by what the natives said, but instead by what they did. It was an outward demonstration. It was something tangible. It was an activity, an action. And let me explain why that's really important. In the Greek, this word natives is barbaros, which is used to describe a person who, quote, spoke a foreign or strange language not understood by another. 
The reason they're called natives here is that Luke, nor anyone else on this boat, recognized the dialect of these natives on Malta. They weren't speaking Greek. They weren't speaking a form of Latin or Aramaic. They were speaking a language not understood by the hearer. In reality, it was a local language, uncomprehensible to the men who washed ashore. And why do I bring this up? You know, I found that more often than not, when someone washes upon our shore, it's important our activities communicate a welcomeness and a love because our words are not often understood. Often, people who walk in the door of a church, coming in from their storm, trying to find a place of refuge, they don't get the lingo. They don't understand the language. I mean, aside from the fact that Christians... You know, we've kind of made up our own like terms and vernacular. Like, like we use phrases that no one else uses in the world. And like in our meaning for these phrases are totally different than like the literal meaning. For example, it's clear to me, man, Jerry Perez is on fire. Someone get a fire extinguisher, right? I mean, what does that even mean? Man, that church was on fire. Did they call the fire department? Like, we obviously understand the meaning, but if you just take the literal interpretation, it's kind of a head-scratcher. I've been born again. You know, that phrase isn't in the Bible anywhere. You've been, huh? Born again? Yes, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, but in Christian vernacular, using it as a phrase, we often, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a part of the way. No one ever, I'm born again. It's also a head scratch. Backslidden. Only Christians use that to just, I'm backslidden. Even the word blessed. How are you doing, man? Blessed. No one uses that outside of the church or the word fellowship. An afterglow. Oh, uh, huh? Yeah, we're going to have after, we're going to have a time, a glow after the, that's weird. Even like daily devotion. What about yearly devotion? A bi-monthly devotion. Like yearly devotion, even that phrase spirit-filled. Isn't it true? Sometimes people walk in the church and they hear phrases that are head They don't understand the language. In addition to that, there's an aspect where someone who, who's not been made alive, not been regenerated, who just maybe doesn't know some spiritual things. They don't get what's going on. It's kind of something that's difficult to comprehend. We talk about righteousness and justification, sanctification, even the word propitiation. What in the world are we talking about? Which is why it's important because when someone comes in to a place of refuge, they walk through the door, they might not understand anything we're saying. Which is why it's very important we communicate more through our actions. A smile is understood. A good morning, how are you doing? You wanna sit with me? Would you like to grab lunch after church? People understand that. Actions really do speak much louder than our words. The third thing, notice, the natives kindled a fire. Now, admittedly, I'm going to take a little license with this one, but bear with me. This word, kindled, or anathno, I'm not Greek, so bear with me. It's an interesting word choice. 
And, and the reason it's an interesting word choice is because Luke only uses this word in one other instance in all of his writings. Don't forget, we have the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. He's an expert in Greek. He only uses this word kindled one other instance, and he uses it to quote Jesus telling his disciples, Luke 12, 49 and 50. I'll read it for you. Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now, it would seem the fire Jesus wished was already kindled and sent on earth was the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and working through his followers. A power Jesus understood could only come when? After he had accomplished his work on the cross. In the context, this would be the baptism he had to be baptized with, the baptism of his death. And understand, for a church to be an effective place of refuge, for us to be a, a welcoming place and a loving place that's not cheesy but genuinely authentic, if we're to model the love of God by receiving all who walk into our church just as Christ has received us, the only way that happens, the only way it's genuine, the only way it's infectious is for the fire of the Holy Spirit to be kindled and burning brightly through our lives. They welcomed them, they showed unusual kindness, and they kindled a fire. Understand, the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us, in order for us to be a genuine place of refuge, it must be something that can be tangibly experienced, felt, seen by those around us. Isn't it true how cold a church becomes when the flame of the Spirit burns dimly? You're not a place of refuge without the warmth of the Spirit, the warmth of the fire. As the famed preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, a church in the land without the Spirit is rather a curse than a blessing. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind. We are useless. And I would agree concerning our church as well. Without a moving of God's Spirit, we're stale and cold. A.W. Tozer had this sad indictment of today's church. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. May we constantly pray for a fresh filling of God's Spirit. Well, verse 11, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island and landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Rigium. After one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Petoli, where we found brethren, were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went towards Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appy Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. The motion of the text. Luke tells us, after three months in Malta, and following this incredible and, and 
unexpected season of ministry when it was now safe to sail again for winter had closed and the early signs of spring had appeared, he tells us they boarded an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers. They set sail for the city of Syracuse, which, as our map will show, is on the eastern side of the island of Sicily. They stay there three days. They continue on to Regium, which is the southernmost tip of the Italian peninsula, staying, we're told, for one day before now making the last journey, last leg of their journey by sea, porting in the coastal town of Patoli. Luke says they stayed there seven days. Paul was allowed to enjoy uh, the interactions with his brethren. He was able to connect with the church. He was encouraged by it before they finally, more than likely on foot, begin the journey to the city of Rome. They take the main road that travels from the south to the north into the Roman capital. It was known as the uh, Appian Way. These two towns, Appi Forum, three ends, they're basically suburbs that you would, upon this journey, work your way through getting to Rome. Appi Forum was 43 miles away, three ends, 33 miles as they're making their way to the city, word begins to spread that the Apostle Paul is making his way to Rome. Word spreads through the Christian community. They come out to greet, to welcome Paul. Note, while Paul has never been to Rome, at least during his, his uh, missionary endeavors, his Christian ministry, he has already by this point written a letter to the Romans. So they were already familiar with Paul. No doubt he had already had an effect uh, a ministry effect in that church. So they come out to greet uh, the Apostle Paul. I love this line, especially when you place it in context to everything that had gone on in Paul's life over the last, let's say, two years. Beginning with the fateful decision to go to Jerusalem instead of going to Rome, starting a riot, being arrested, the time in Caesarea, the shipwreck, all the things that has happened in his life I love this line, when Paul saw them, speaking of Christians, he thanked God and took courage. At long last, the promises of God have come to fruition. Beginning with that night when Paul is in jail, the fortress of Antonio, there in Jerusalem, thinking maybe I've totally ruined God's calling in my life. Maybe I'm totally lost. When Jesus stood by him and said, be of good church, be of good courage. Don't worry. It's all right. As you've testified me in Jerusalem, you'll testify of me in Rome. And no doubt there were points along the journey that were a bit of a head scratcher where Paul's thinking, maybe I've lost my way. Maybe God's no longer at work. But now here he is. The fruition of the promises of God. What a joyous moment. Verse 16. Now, when we had come to Rome, the centurion, Julius, delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Though Paul is a prisoner of the Roman Empire, because he, as a Roman citizen, was appealing his case to Caesar and had yet to be charged with any type of crime, Luke tells us that Paul was permitted, allowed, to dwell by himself, kind of a unique set of circumstances, with a soldier who guarded him. While Paul has been reprimanded to house arrest, which, as we'll see and mention, afforded him the opportunity not only to visit with people, but to write letters. Unlike his time in Caesarea, Paul is chained to a rotation of soldiers tasked 
with the aim of guarding him. But you know what? I don't think the Apostle Paul minded this, even in the slightest. Paul ever got bored. He had a built-in person he could witness, share Christ with, someone who couldn't run away, someone literally chained to him. For the next four hours, bud, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and there's nothing you can do. We're stuck in this together. I love the heart of the Apostle Paul. For the record, during the two years that Paul will spend here in Roman custody, he will write four letters that are included in our Bible. He will write a letter to the Ephesians, the church in Philippi, Philippians, Colossians. He'll also write a little letter to a friend named Philemon. And what's interesting about all of these letters is that over and over again, Paul will reference his present circumstances as affording him incredible opportunity to share the gospel. I'll give you just one example. In Philippians 4 verse 22, Paul would go so far as to write to the believers in Philippi, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. No doubt Paul was making an impact for the gospel. Well, it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, pause, just for starters, for context, it's important to point out that Paul called, look at it again, the leaders of the Jews together. Like he's not speaking to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. Instead, in what we're about to read, Paul will be addressing the leaders of the Jewish community there in Rome. Obviously, we can imagine Paul's desire for a sit down with these men was to probably set the record straight as to the events that had prompted his case to be presented before Caesar. Let's look at what Paul had to say. Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I have anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you, to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Like Paul's direct, and he's to the point, right? He emphatically declares to these Jewish leaders that he had, quote, done nothing against their people or the customs of their fathers that would have warranted his incarceration. Paul even declares that when the Romans examined him, they wanted to let him go, finding no cause to put him to death. And yet, Paul explains that the reason he was compelled to appeal his case to Caesar was because the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem still insisted on his execution in spite of the evidence of his innocence. Paul concludes by ensuring these men that he had no attention, look at it, of accusing his nation before Caesar, but that he was bound with these chains because of the hope of Israel. Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, speaking of Christianity, we know that it is spoken against, speaking of the Jewish communities, everywhere. Now that's a twist. The leaders 
of the Jewish community in Rome had not received letters from Judea, nor had they received a verbal report of any of Paul's activities. Basically, it's as though they're replying to Paul, listen, man, we really appreciate the courtesy, like that's very kind of you, making sure we're all in the same page, but truthfully, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like that's what they're saying. Like we have no clue what you've done, why you're here, why other people might be upset, nothing. Like it would seem that knowing they didn't have a case against Paul to present before Caesar, the Jews in Jerusalem had decided it just simply wasn't worth sending any type of representatives to Rome that they flaked out on the case altogether. Also, historically, during this time period, there are other geopolitical events, things happening there in Judea that probably also distracted uh, their attention from dealing with one individual. Now, on a side note, isn't it interesting, rather incredible, that Paul, in Rome, right? He's in Rome, being sent to the Gentiles, that in this moment, he is now presented with an open door to share the gospel with who? The Jews, the Jewish leadership. Like we're told that for the first time in his ministry, maybe his entire ministry, a group of Jewish leaders, look at it again, quote, desired to hear what he thought concerning this sect, an open door to share the gospel. So when they had appointed a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. A whole day dialogue about Jesus. Notice Paul used the law of Moses, and the prophets. He used the Bible to do what? Three things, to explain, testify, and persuade them to accept Jesus as their Savior. And herein we find kind of a threefold strategy for evangelism. First, look at it again. Paul explained, literally, to set forth from the scriptures, the case for Christ. Paul starts with the Bible. He says, let me open up from, from Moses and the prophets. Let me explain how scripture said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, would be raised in Nazareth, would go to Egypt, how he would suffer and he would die. Paul opens the word and he presents that Jesus is the only one who could have fulfilled any of these prophecies Concerning the Messiah, we're all waiting for. He builds the case for Christ. He presents evidence from Scripture. But then also notice that Paul solemnly testified of what? Of his own experiences in encountering the resurrected Jesus. Paul talks about how he was a rejecter, a resister, an opposer. That his conscience had been pricked, seeing Stephen testify and die. He held the coats. That he lashed out even more in anger, like a wild animal, until, heading to Damascus, he met a risen Lord by the name of Jesus. 
and it changed his life. So he explains from scripture, he testifies of his own experiences, his own personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus before finally persuading them. In the Greek, this word literally means to induce one by words to believe. He challenged them. He presented them an opportunity to receive. Basically, Paul presented scriptural and experiential evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world before challenging them to make a decision to receive and follow Christ. I exhort you, have the boldness, be bold enough to challenge people to make a decision. You know, sometimes people are just wanting the opportunity. They don't know what, where to start. They don't know what to say. There's a bit of trepidation, a little bit of fear, and all they want. Have you ever been in that instance? Maybe you were, where someone said, had the boldness, would you like to receive Christ? And it was like a flood of emotions just broke from their heart, flowed from their soul. Yes, I really would. Well, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. Some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul said one word, that the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our father, saying, then he quotes, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, for their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. This opening line, some were persuaded, some disbelieved. Like, could you really find a better phrase to describe, to summarize the plight of all humanity? That some, when it's all said and done, when the story's all told, that some accepted and some rejected. Some were persuaded, others disbelieved. When it comes to Jesus and the evidence put forth to substantiate his claims, that he is the savior of the world, your only hope of salvation, some people will respond with faith while others will respond in disbelief. And understand what's being communicated in this word disbelief. It doesn't mean that there wasn't an intellectual understanding or acceptance. Rather, this word disbelief describes not a lack of compelling evidence, but simply the results of a person's inability to accept the implications of that belief. It's one thing to know that Jesus is who he said he was. But it's another thing to surrender to it, to let go of yourself, to grab hold of him. People walk in disbelief, not because they don't know, but because they refuse to accept the change that will be required to truly follow Jesus. As a witness to the world, a witness of Jesus Christ, I hope you understand that it is your job your responsibility, your commission to be a witness of Jesus to the world around you, not just by the words you say, but by the way you live. Words and deeds. May I ask, 
When was the last time you shared your faith? You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. You claim to have this commission. You claim to even be empowered by the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you opened your mouth and said, can I tell you about this man, Jesus, and how he changed my life entirely? Can I tell you about my life before Christ and the transformation that ha that's happened since? When was the last time you just told your story? If we're called to be this, are we? Are you? Am I? And while it's our job to be a witness, always remember the result of being a witness, that's none of your concern. It, it doesn't actually really matter. Your job is to be faithful in being a witness. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And then it's ultimately God's job to do the saving. But when it's all said and done, even when we fulfill our role perfectly, like Paul, testifying, persuading, laying out the case, presenting his story, people will still be forced to make their own choice. People will have to choose, do I respond in faith or do I walk in disbelief? And when he had said these words, verse 29, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. No one forbidding him. Book of Acts. Now, for the next two years, while Paul awaited his trial, awaited the chance to stand before Emperor Nero, he spent his time receiving anyone who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching all the things that concern Jesus. You know, what's interesting here is that the book itself, Acts, I mean, it does end with a bit of a cliffhanger, doesn't it? I mean, immediately, you're kind of left like wondering. Like, what in the world happened to Paul? What happened with the case? I mean, it's like Acts closes like the Sopranos, just a dramatic fade to black. You're like, did the power go out? What happened? Was my service interrupted? What's taking place here? What happened? What occurred? According to church history, most scholars believe that Paul was eventually acquitted, that he was ultimately released from prison. As we've seen, not only was there no case against Paul, it's likely his accusers never even came to present the other end of the argument regardless of what took place when Paul stood before Nero, it's likely there was nothing to convict or execute a Roman citizen. There also seems to be some scriptural evidence to suggest that from Rome, Paul would actually embark on yet another missionary journey. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul requests that his young friend, a man he had left on the island of Crete to pastor a new church, come and join him to spend the winter in the Greek city of Nicopolis. This is Titus 3 verse 12. Now, what makes that fascinating is that in our travels through the book of Acts, we have no mention of Paul going to Crete to plant a church. The only time he stopped at Crete was on this ship that wrecked at Malta, and he spent just a moment there in the city of Fairhavens. Not only that, but we have no mention in the book of Acts of Paul wintering, spending some significant time in this town of Nicopolis. Beyond this, the contents of Paul's final letter, which is 2 Timothy. That letter describes a Roman incarceration 
that looked very different from the one presented us in the book of Acts, leading many to believe that Paul's released 61 AD-ish, only to be later, around 66, 67 AD, re-arrested and ultimately beheaded by Nero. This is the case. It's entirely possible that Paul, from Rome, returned, visited the cities of Troas, Corinth, Miletus, 2 Timothy chapter 4, before traveling west, potentially even as far as Spain. Paul expresses a desire to go to Spain in Romans 15, potentially, according to legend and history, maybe even making it to the island of Great Britain, the British Isle. Now, Paul's released. That's the result of the court case. But it wasn't just about Paul. Paul's not standing before Nero just representing himself, but he's also representing Christianity, isn't he? And as far as the church is concerned, Many believe that Christianity itself was legalized by Nero following Paul's trial. But this legalization would be short-lived. You see, in 64 AD, a great portion of Rome, the city, was burnt to the ground with many believing Nero was the arsonist. Nero needed a scapegoat, according to Roman historian Tacticus, Quote, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. For the next 250 years, Christianity would bear the brunt of blame for the decline of the Roman Empire. As a result, the church would have to endure wave after wave after wave of intense persecution. This would ultimately culminate in 303 A.D., with Diocletian issuing a series of edicts rescinding all rights of Christians and effect making Christianity illegal. And yet, history also tells us that with each wave of persecution that would take place, the church, the gospel, the good news spread at an even rapid, more rapid pace. During Diocletian's persecution, it's been stated that for every one Christian that was executed, martyred, Four people converted to Christ as a result. If you're interested in church history, it's about all I'm going to give you. Uh, we've included a link, c316.tv, a series of, of, of messages throughout church history called the Whiteboard Sessions, given by David Guzik. If you're interested in kind of a flyby look, I think it's 17 studies that kind of cover church history. Uh, they're included on uh, c316.tv. You can look at it on your own. One more thing about the church. By 313 AD, Christianity had become such a dominant force that the newly elected emperor, Constantine, officially legalized Christianity, placing it under the protection of Rome. Sadly, over the next hundred years, the church and the state would begin an unholy union which would have severe consequences. Historically, this marriage of the church and state produced what we know as the Dark Ages. Now, one of the stark realities, as we close here, of church history is that while the book of Acts may provide Jesus' blueprint for the church, sadly, the church has rarely modeled this ideal. Like even the first century church, founded and led by the apostles, failed in this endeavor. Every single letter, with the exception of Philippians, written by Paul, was corrective in nature. There were problems that needed to be dealt with. There is no 
perfect church. And I'm convinced it's because Jesus knew the church would often fall short of his blueprint that he wrote seven letters to the church some 30 years after the book of Acts was completed. And he does this for an important reason. Jesus wants to warn the church of several things that can tarnish his perfect design. These letters are contained in Revelation 2 and 3, and we'll pick up on that train of thought next Sunday. We're going to start a series through these letters. But in conclusion, in conclusion to the book of Acts, as we wrap it up, I'm left with one final thought, one final consideration. As a record of the acts of Jesus through his church, it's our subtitle, right? It's what the book's about. The acts of Jesus through his church. I find it very fitting that the book, the story, the narrative is left open-ended. There is no conclusion, right? It just stops. And why do I find that so fascinating? The work of Jesus in the world through his church is a work that still continues today. It hasn't stopped. You see, I'm, I'm of the opinion that what makes the book of Acts so unique is that in some ways, it's a book that's still being written. It's the beginning of a story that's still continuing. Sure, the narrative. The narrative might have different characters. We might be exchanging one name for another, but you know what? Every essential component of this story to our own remains the same. Same commission, same Holy Spirit, same Jesus, same scripture, same calling, same light, different people, different culture, but it's all still the same, which leaves me with one final question. And we're gonna close with it. As a follower of Jesus, left with a commission and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that commission of taking the gospel, being a witness of the gospel unto a dark world. When it's all said and done, when the story is actually finished, when the final period is placed, what will your chapter look like? What will your chapter and the divine tale read like. You'll have one. If you're a part of Jesus' church, if you're his hands and feet, 